1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. <clears throat> and um, you may be already knowing where this chapter takes us. Uh, if you're familiar with the accounts in the life of David, this is probably one of the most familiar stories in the entire Bible. Um, I think few stories uh, have been talked about, uh, taught in a class, made movies of or videos of. Um, even VeggieTales has a David and Goliath story. Um, and there's, there's cartoons about it. There's everything you can think around the story of David and Goliath. And uh, there's so much that can be gleaned from this account. And uh, I don't, I don't want to run through it, but I don't want to belabor the point either. And so I'm asking the Lord for the right pace to walk through this chapter. If you found your place there, we're going to begin reading in verses 1, uh, and we'll read down through um, verse number 11 uh, to introduce this text. And then I want to jump over to another chapter in the, in the book of Psalms and read that together. I'll direct you when we finish here, and then we'll pray together. So let's begin reading in verse number 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkoth, where they belong, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Azekah. And in Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Would you, let's turn to Psalms chapter 2 now, if you would. Psalms chapter 2. Psalms chapter number 2. And we're going to read that together as well. Just a few short verses. Psalms chapter number 2. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today have I begotten you, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O you kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I want to talk to you this morning and I've entitled the message this morning, Why Do the Nations Rage? Let's pray together this morning. Father, we ask you that you would give us uh, your heart and mind as we open this text together. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would do a work uh, in our hearts as we prepare to understand this chapter together. Now, Father, you would um, give us clarity of thought as we walk into it this morning. Uh, Lord, without you, we can do nothing. And Father, we, we are empty without you, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us and use us this morning for your glory. And uh, we'll just praise you for what you're doing, or thank you for the work that we see going on around the world, even today. And or may you be honored and glorified in it all. It's in the precious name of Jesus we ask it all. Amen. Well, I don't know that you can find a passage of scripture that would be more exciting for a young boy to hear about, of seeing this, this little account of David coming to the battle, this giant of a man standing, hovering over the people. And the account unfolds where David takes some rocks and a sling and he runs to meet the giant and the giant falls flat on his face and is killed. Generally, when you're telling the story in Sunday school, that's where it stops. Uh, we leave out the part of how he hacked off his head and held it up. Uh, but that is a part of the story as well. Um, I didn't watch any cartoons that depicted that part, you know. Um, it's actually a very gruesome story when you get down to the brass tacks of it. And often this is taught in a, in a way that would challenge us to have faith in God, and I think that's a very good admonition, to believe God that can overcome the problems we face, and truly God can overcome the problems we face. But I think there's such a, a greater and more beautiful storyline behind this that I hope to get to over the next two weeks. For Israel, it's just another battle with the Philistines. These battles have been going on with the Philistines since they came into Canaan. Philistines would rise in power in one place and take a piece of property and gather some resources and, and they would operate with roving parties of marauding bands that would raid a defenseless town and then go away and Saul would come and defeat them and there was a back and forth all through Saul's kingdom. And even through the book of Justice, Judges, we find the Philistines plaguing the nation of Israel. You may remember the man Samson in the book of Judges, the man who was stronger. He had superhuman strength and he had grown his hair out long and he had this powerful ability to take on the Philistines and he kills a thousand of them with the jawbone of a donkey. And we find Samson doing these mighty deeds and this is the same group of people that we come up here today. The battleground is now a mere 15 miles, 14 miles west of Bethlehem. They've moved into Israeli territory. The Jewish people have rallied around Saul, but only tentatively now. No doubt the word of Saul's rejection is spreading. The enemy has come into Israel territory, and each army, they're holding high ground on either side of this valley, 
as they look down across this valley between them. David, the anointed king, has returned to his father's house and he is tending his father's sheep again. And possibly we can conjecture as to why he's returned home and ultimately the issue doesn't matter. He returned back and forth between Saul's service and his dad's service and he goes back home here in this account. We'll see a little later on that his dad sends him back to the army to find out what's going on with his brothers and he returns there again. But he's left the court musician role and he's now returned with the sheep in the field. Saul has been rejected by God as king. The evil spirit from the Lord had come upon Saul. The spirit of the Lord had left Saul and the spirit of God rests upon David. And this is where we open the account. The Philistines stand ready for battle. The not too distant past reminds them of Samson, who had terrorized their villages, who had defeated their people. Samson seems to be the quintessential uh, opposite of this Goliath that they have. Samson was the one that went in and outmatched all their men, and nobody could stand against Samson. And, and they're thinking, ah, we've outplanned Israel now. They thought they had a champion a few years ago. Now we've got a champion. And no doubt this young man had been trained all of his life and Goliath had been uh, cultivated and trained by the best of warriors to be uh, their champion, to be the one that could rise to the ranks. It's not his first battle by any means. The havoc that Samson had caused the Philistines was in the back of their mind and now their turn had come, or so they thought, to have a powerful Herculean champion, thinking that for this time they had outprepared Israel and their champion was sure to win the day. They have the field. They have the upper hand. Now as we read this text here and we think of Saul's army, they're gathered on one side of the hill and the Philistines are gathered on the other and Saul we know has gone back through this manic uh, discouragement and anger and fits of wrath and then to being calm again and we probably find him in a lull at this point. But definitely not a man of courage at this moment, not a man of power and excitement about taking the battle to the enemy of God like we saw him earlier. If you go back to chapter 11, you see him calling the troops together and let's go to fight the enemy. This is not Saul now. Saul is hiding in his tent. He's waiting in the back. And what do we find missing in this chapter? There's no Samuel, no prophet. No prayer, no sacrifice, no seeking God's will, no priest called to the forefront with the Urim and the Thummim to discern what God would have them to do. As a matter of fact, when you look at the nation of Israel at this moment, Israel bears the appearance of a godless army because they're not seeking God's will in the matter at all. They've done no more to find God's will than the Philistines have. And they have drawn the battle lines in array, and they're going in their own power and might. Even Jonathan, as much as I like the character Jonathan, he stands in the back of the lines of battle, and he hides in the rear. We see a champion stepping forward. And man, this always struck me. Every time I read it as a kid, and every time I heard someone teach it, there's this, this picture of this giant stepping out onto the field. 
No doubt we could walk through this picture in our mind, but let's just review very briefly because we've all been down it, right? Six cubits in a span. Anywhere from eight foot five to nine foot nine. That's a giant of a man. I mean, if he lived today, you could make a lot of money in the NBA, right? They could hang the basketball rim on him. You know, it's just a massive dude. And, and not only so, but then when we begin to look at him, uh, he's wearing uh, the best armor that could be made for him. And it was actually the trade of the Philistines to be uh, armorist, and they, they dealt with metal all the time, and they had at one point, the Bible tells us, that there were no smiths in Israel, that Israel, when they wanted something done with metal, they would go to a Philistine village to get it done. And they were very good with metal, and so they were very good craftsmen making this, and mostly brass is what they dealt with, and we see that portrayed in his armor as well. He has a helmet of brass, a coat of mail. I remember as a kid trying to figure out what purpose it would to be hanging letters on him. Mail. It is spelled mail. M-A-L. What's the deal? Why are you putting letters on the guy? How's that going to help him? And mail being that interlocking armor that was put together. And they say that possibly this was, would have been shingled over like so and woven together around some kind of fabric uh, to make it almost impossible to find a place to penetrate. It would have been tightly pulled together so that he would be have movement and yet still have protection. This coat of mail alone would have weighed about 125 pounds. Last summer, I went backpacking for the first time. My son and I went twice, or we went twice, but I went backpacking the first time. And they say that when you go backpacking, you always pack your fears. Well, my fears weighed about 32 pounds. And about, I don't know, probably about eight miles into that hike, I was wishing that I feared a lot less. And I was only carrying 32 pounds on my back. And uh, we actually went about halfway through the loop. We were doing a 20-mile loop. And I dropped my pack off at the bottom of the loop and walked the rest of it without my pack. Got the truck and came back around and picked my pack up. Um... And you think, wow, 30 pounds. I mean, I could put 30 pounds on my back. I'll be fine. Good luck. And here this guy is going into battle with a 125-pound shirt. This guy was no, no small man. He's a beast of a man. Not only that, but he wears leg guards around his leg made of brass, a chest plate. In addition to this, the spearhead that he carries is 600 shekels. The head of his spear is 15 pounds. That's a chunk to be thrown at someone. A weaver's beam. And you get the idea of those beams that they would use to pull down and to weave cloth together. This large piece of timber was used to hold his head. The shield that covered the whole man uh, would be uh, in front of him. And they draw pictures of these shields that would come back and uh, would curve back up at the top to protect from any uh, aerial assaults that would come in. And this shield was brought out and was carried by another man in front of him in the battle. This man was armored. The sight of this man would have gleamed in the sunlight in that valley and would have given pause to every man who had ever drawn a sword. He would have questioned his own ability in the, in the greatest sense to say who could take on a foe like this. 
But not only do you see this specimen of a man uh, standing before us today, not only do that, but we see his raging. He begins to mock them. I defy your army. Send me out a man to fight. Bring me a man. And some argue that we know that Saul, from reading his account, that he was head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the kingdom. And we know Saul was a, probably a big man for his uh, family. And he could have been what the man was calling out. Hey, you got a champion. Send him out. Where's Saul? Bring out your champion. Who's your best guy? Put your best guy up against our best guy and let's see who wins. I dare you to prove me wrong. He begins to mock them. And he doesn't just do this one day, but he does this 40 days in a row. It's a lot of time. And this testing has gone on now for 40 days for the nation of Israel as they hear Saul mocking and making light of and, and berating them. And all the men are fearful and they're hiding. And we left them in verse 11 just a little bit earlier where it says this. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. His raging continues as not only he mocks them, this champion stands indomitable in the field. No one knows how to defeat him. No one thinks that they can take him down. They're fearful of their own life. As we were studying this this week, uh, one of the men on staff pointed out the definition of champion, and I love this definition, and you'll, you'll get it in the weeks to come. But literally, a champion is one who stands between two armies or one who goes between. And it was often the practice that what would happen is you would send a champion from your army and you guys would send a champion for your army and we'll just meet in the middle and whatever happens to your champion happens to all of you and whatever happens to your champion happens to all of you. So if your champion is victorious, then you all get the spoils. If your champion is victorious, you get the spoils. If yours die, you all die. If yours die, you all die. And why go through the, the conflict? We'll have our champions meet. And this corporate representation is what was being put forward before the nation of Israel. The idea that one person would go and fight for everyone, and one person would win the victory, and that victory would apply to the entire nation if that person won the victory. So we find Saul hiding. We find Jonathan in the background. We see David now at home with the sheep. Goliath is standing there in his indomitable strength. He sees no way he can lose. What champion can Israel produce that can stand in the moment that we have planned for many months and even years now? Who are they going to show? We are way ahead of them in our preparation. Now let me just say this morning that the devil himself has done all he can to stand against the people of God and the individuals of this world to take his attack to believers and to men, mankind alike. He thinks he's pretty strong, not knowing that the champion of the hour is on his way. And I got news for you this morning. The champion of the hour is not a man, but it's Almighty God. We're about to see the champion step forward in just a few short verses. Goliath has set the terms of the fight, and as far as he can see, they are well within his favor. Victory in this hour will be determined by whether or not 
we take the challenge or not. And if you take the challenge, defeat is sure. What you and I need is not to take the challenge, but to call for a champion. We need a champion, someone who can go down into that field and take on the enemy on our behalf. Someone who would say, I will go into the valley of the shadow of death and I will face death and defeat death for you and bring victory back to you. Does that have any New Testament ring to you at all? And as we think of this, if you think this morning that you will take this job on yourself, you would be better off staying in your tents and hiding. You see, Goliath saw Israel as the servants of Saul, not of God in the first place. And as a side note this morning, let's always be alert to the temptation of joining some man's army. And too often, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves in the orbit of Christian world and Christian thinking that we find the answer is some man's way of looking at things. The idea this morning is that we do not follow a man, we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Regardless of what area we might follow them in, in morality or in religion or in politics, though this morning we are in the Lord's army. Saul will only lead you so far, but he will never lead you to obedience because he's not obedient. Saul will only lead you so far, but not to victory because he's not victorious. Not to courage because he's lost all courage. Not to laying down your life because he's trying to preserve his life. Not to the true champion of Israel. Saul cannot take you to the true champion of Israel. Saul is a picture of our own brokenness, our own weakness, our own lack of ability. <coughs> We're looking for somebody who can point us to the true champion. And so... <coughs> We see the response of these people. They heard the words. They're dismayed, greatly afraid. Goliath and all Israel have evaluated the situation. They have run the numbers. And I can picture Saul and his men in, in a room somewhere and maybe in a tent. And they've drawn it up on the board. Well, who can we send? Who do we have? Is there something we could do? What are we going to accomplish? Nobody wants to come. Hey, how about we put a bounty on his head? Let's, let's get some money together and let's say we'll give him a lot of money and he can be the king's uh, son-in-law. And, and then we'll see who will rise up and take this out and the bounty is not answered. You see, everybody is planning this battle as if the whole battle solely rests in the hands of the men involved. That the outcome of things is all up to the men that are doing the work. And the reality this morning is it is not. So why do the heathen rage? Why does Saul stand there and mock the nation of Israel and make light of the God that they serve? Why did the heathen rage? <coughs> the nation rage because they have their champion and they trust him for their victory. They look at their champion and they're thinking, that's what we'll do, because I believe our champion, and by the way, uh, the champion comes with different names, but ultimately the champion is the God of this world. Oh, it comes with the names of better economies. That'll be the thing that is our champion. That'll solve our problem. It comes with the name of even better morals. And he holds up this idea of moral purity, and that'll solve the problem. Uh, we, we come with names of all kinds of economic and political forms that we think will be the thing that causes us to solve the problem. We look for powerful men to step forward. And nations 
throughout history have looked for strong men to step up and to save the day. And men put their confidence in men, and when we put our confidence in men, it always comes to naught. Always. Because men have never been the answer to the problem. Oh, they raise because they think they have the power to do it. It's their power, their wealth, their influence. Pharaoh, sitting upon his throne, and a former slave, former uh, court uh, adopted child comes in and says, God told me to tell you to let his people go. And Pharaoh responds, he says, who is God that I would obey him? And who are you that you would come in here and tell me to do this? Get out. And we see the end of this chapter, and when we get to that end of that chapter, it's, it's, it's really an amazing picture. Pharaoh was sitting upon his throne looking strong and wise. Moses is looking for answers, and Israel is wandering through the countryside looking for straw. Each of them are looking like they have failed, that God has let them down, and I love the next chapter and the next verse, then God. Then God, because they were looking weak and Pharaoh thought he had the power, he had the position, he had the army, he had the strength, it was all in his hand, and he began to rage against the God of the nation of Israel. <coughs> in Exodus 5-2, we see the beginning of the end. Pharaoh falls. It's always amazing to me what brings him down. What's going to kill Goliath? A little stone. I mean, you know, it's kind of like this huge buildup of all of this armor. And then, plunk. You know, Pharaoh, with all of this power and this might. And what does God do? He invades the land. What mighty armies does he send? Bugs and frogs. And it's almost the simplicity and the weakness of those things that show us that God is the captain of the Lord of hosts. And the heathen continue to rage. And <coughs> excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar. Can you think of a more powerful, arrogant king than Nebuchadnezzar? The king of Babylon with all of its power and might and its spread and, and, and all of the beauty that they built and all of the luxury that they were able to afford themselves. And he gets a vision and he has it interpreted by Daniel even. He's like, ah, yeah, something about me being cut off and yeah, whatever. Okay. Back to what I was doing. And he stands, the Bible says, on the porch of his palace and he's looking out over his kingdom and his words are, look at all that my hands have built. Look at all that I have accomplished. And the Bible says that he flourished in his palace. Then on that day, God drove that powerful man into the field. His hair grew out like eagle's feathers. His claws grew out and he ate the grass. And God brought him down to almost the subsistence of an animal. God does it in a moment. And Nebuchadnezzar, the Bible says, when the time passed, that his understanding returned to him. And he said, now I know 
That God sets up whom he will. And God pulls down whom he will. And there's only one God that we worship. And he points us to him. And Nebuchadnezzar reminds us that with all of man's power. And all of man's organization. And all of your brass. And all of your helmets. Ultimately it is God who rules in the affairs of men. And yet the heathen rage. This morning I would ask you. This world is full of nations that rage against God. Who are we listening to? Who do we hear the most of? And I think it would probably be determined by what our level of confidence is moving forward. Are we at peace in our heart knowing that the king of kings rules? Or do we live in fear of men's kingdoms and men's power and men's position? Sure, man can destroy the body. But Jesus said himself, do not fear him who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And I got news for you this morning. That is not their champion, Satan. Satan doesn't have power to send anyone to hell this morning. It is God that pronounces judgment upon men, and he is the one that we must fear. He is the one that is on our side. Whose strength are you trusting in? Whose confidence are we hiding in? Well, you know, Saul, he won that battle before, and man, he was such a powerful leader. What happened to Saul? I'll tell you what happened to Saul. The Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. No longer does he have power anymore because men do not have power except what God grants them. So this morning, we are going to leave the field of battle for another week. Goliath is standing in the field looking strong and wise. All the Philistines and the Israelites are wondering if a champion will step forward and doubting if there will ever be one. The 40 days are dragging by. Fear has kept the Israels and their Israelis in their tents. Saul is out of sight. And the question must linger in their mind. Has God forsaken us? Would God fail his people? Would there be a deliverer to set us free? So what I'd like to say to you this morning in closing is the stories of the Old Testament. So often we are reading them as somehow or another, I need to read these stories and just have more confidence that God is going to deliver me if I just try harder. If I could just be like Noah, if I could just be like David, if I could just be like Moses... But the reality is, is these men are not like themselves, but they're like the God who filled them. You see, the stories of the Old Testament aren't designed to give us confidence that we can overcome if we will do a little bit more. And I think the, 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 the push of the Western church is, is that we can really make a difference if we will do something more. Let's get a little better organized. Let's get a little better graphics. Let's get a, get a better plan. And I'm not against any of those things. But we get the idea, if I could just do more, it'll all be solved. I'll wait for my intro music to end. Um, I would have picked a better song. So. <laughs> I cannot think for anything right now. Don't laugh at me. You're not up here doing this. Don't do this. It's not fair at all. Um, 
The stories of the Old Testament are not designed to give us confidence that we can overcome if we will do a little bit more and try a little bit harder. But rather, I believe the Old Testament stories are designed to say to you and I, you cannot overcome. I think when we get to these places and these stories, we rush past them too quickly and we get to the end of the stories, like, well, I know David gets, he kills Goliath, everything's good. We're going to overcome. We shall overcome. Well, we will. But I think we have to stop at this point right here and learn from the story that you can't overcome. You are not the deliverer. You are not the general in the battle. You are not the priest that will intercede on your behalf. You are not the champion that the nation of Israel needs. You see, I need a champion. I need a deliverer. I need a priest. I need a king who can do the work that I cannot do. You see, when we look to the Old Testament, we see men like Joseph. The thing we need to understand is that Joseph is not enough. Joseph dies and is in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph points us to someone that there has to be somebody better. Joshua is not enough. Hebrews tells us if Joshua had given them rest, then he wouldn't have talked about the day when there would be a rest coming. Who was that rest coming from? It wasn't Joshua. It wasn't Moses. And this morning, Moses was not enough. David's not enough. But each of these men, through the power of the Spirit of God, Point us as road signs and pictures to the one who is enough. Who is enough? You see, there is one that is better than Jonah. There is one that is better than Moses. There is one that is better than David. There is one that is better. And Hebrews tells us that there is a better high priest. And there is a better intercessor. And we have that better high And not only this, he's not only the high priest, he's the tabernacle. He's the holy place. He's the showbread. He's the lamp. He's the incense. He's everything. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. He's the atoning work. He's the veil that he walked between. And we're looking for the one who is better. That's what this points us to. We need a better champion. Remember what the word champion means? Go between. The one who stands between. That whatever happens to our champion happens to us. Whatever happens to their champion happens to them. This morning I wonder who's your champion? The heathen rage this morning, not only when they cast off morals and justice, and I think the kingdom's rage this morning when they just deny the existence of God. When they look at their own power and might as the solution to the problems humanity faces, godless, godless could mean that the nations try to do what they do without God. And here's the thing this morning. What is the difference between someone who believes in God and doesn't depend upon him and someone who denies God and obviously doesn't depend upon him? In our practical work, in our daily life, in our weekly confidence and struggle, there's no difference. And I think so often this is done in word and deed where we deny God's existence in our word and we deny him in our deed. And though you and I as believers would never deny him in word, how often do we deny him in deed? 
See, Christian and non-Christian alike make this mistake. You see, heathens say this. And I think here's the fundamental difference. A person who is without God and without hope is a person who still thinks they can. Now listen to that for just a second. If you think you can, you have not come to face to face with the gospel. It's when you understand that you can't. What what we have here is a gathering weekly of a bunch of losers. That's what we are. And we freely admit that we cannot. Our wisdom is not enough. Our power is not enough. Our strength is not enough. And it never will be. And by the way, God doesn't need one iota of my wisdom. He doesn't need one ounce of my strength. He doesn't need any of that to accomplish his purpose because a believer comes to the place where they understand, I can't. What I need is a champion. I need a champion. Now that champion comes along and the Spirit of God lives inside of us. And now, friend, we operate, and remember Colossians, from victory, not for victory. And we're going to see next week, the nation of Israel has victory. What a Savior. What a God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we ask you to bless the reading of your word this morning together. We ask you to take what has been said, that you would drive it into our hearts today. Father, we are weak. Father, we are powerless. Father, without you, we can do nothing. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts this morning. Lord, so often it seems like the giant is still standing there. But I am so glad that we have the hope in Jesus Christ that our champion is not going to win the victory. But he said, it is finished. The victory is ours. With our heads bowed and eyes closed just for a moment before we stand and sing. If you're here this morning, maybe you've grown up in church and you know the lingo, you know this story better than I do. This morning, I hope that you understand that the gospel is not just a mental assent to a set of doctrines, but it is understanding that you are a sinner hopelessly bound for a Christless hell apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ and that the Spirit of God calls you in conviction to Him and you respond in faith and He does a work that regenerates you from the inside out. It is not of man's wisdom. It is not of your power. You can't teach Sunday school long enough or get baptized enough times. It's not those things that will save you. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ. That alone is our hope. And this morning, if you do not know that for sure, I I pray this morning you would not leave this room before you talk to someone, confront someone, ask the person next to you, let's go talk to a pastor. Let's go talk to someone in the church. Let's get this answered. Don't put it off. Today is the day salvation.